0: Our scripture reading today is from the book of Joshua, chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. This is the word of God. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with his king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. blowing the trumpets, with the ark of the covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, you shall not shout or make your voice heard, nor shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark ark of the Lord to circle the city going about it once and they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp then Joshua rose early in the morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord and the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord walked on and they blew the trumpets continually and the armed men were walking before them and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go to the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then it devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our our God will stand forever.
1: Uh, there we go. Since February, we've been shocked by the needless war being waged in Ukraine. In many ways, the actions of Vladimir Putin seem senseless. Uh, but what if he were to get on television and in an effort to explain his reasoning said, well, the reason that we're attacking you is that our God said that this land is ours. So you can leave your cities and homes uh, or we're going we're to have to kill you. This would not be very convincing diplomacy uh, by any means. Now, there are a few stories in the Bible as challenging and as troubling to modern readers as God's command that the Israelites should do away with the Canaanites and take over their land. Why would God send his people to take the land that belongs to another nation? Does this qualify as genocide? Is this the same God that reveals himself in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? And if Jesus says to love your enemies, why does God declare war on so many people in the Old Testament? This is the task before us today. How are we meant to see the kindness and severity of God in the conquest of Canaan? Well, As we know, the Bible tells a unified story, and like all stories, we can't just jump into the middle of this one, because this conquest has a context, and that context takes us to the very heart of the story of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 12, God chose one man, Abraham, and promised that through him and his family, all the nations of the world would be blessed. God then told Abraham that his descendants would inherit this land that he was inhabiting, which was currently inhabited by the Canaanites. So that as one people group, Yahweh would be their God and he, uh, they would be his people. After the exodus from Egypt, the covenant commands of Mount Sinai and 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses passed his leadership to Joshua. Joshua. And this is what we've been considering for the last few months as we've been studying Joshua. Because the first literary unit of Joshua from chapters 1 through 5 is about Joshua becoming this new leader of Israel. But now we're entering a new stage of the book of Joshua, a new literary unit. And we see here Joshua's job was to lead the people across the Jordan River into Canaan and secure the land that God promised Abraham. The plan was that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to all the world, right? God even called them a kingdom of priests, and that this land was going to be the place where this royal priesthood would begin. The only problem was the land was full of other people who were not part of this agreement, and they didn't want to leave. And here's where things get confusing for us. Starting a war, destroying major cities, that seems to be the opposite of being a blessing. How does killing the Canaanites fit into Israel being a kingdom of priests and a blessing to all nations? So I hope you have your Bibles open this morning to Joshua as we consider these things together. First thing I want us to consider this morning is that we have a new generation with a new test before them. God is presenting this new generation of Israel with a new test. The theme of testing in Scripture is nothing new. We see it almost on page one, with the man and the woman and two trees in a garden. We see it in every major narrative of Scripture. And testing in Scripture is never meant to be this idea of a trick or a trap. But rather, it's an opportunity to exercise belief and responsibility. The best way to think about testing comes from Jesus' parable of the talents and the three servants in Matthew 25. Remember, he gives a little bit of money to three different people and entrusts it to them to see what they will do. To those that were faithful and responsible, he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. But for the one who was not, uh, he suffered judgment separation. Most recently, Israel was put to the test when they approached Cana for the first time in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. They sent 12 spies into the land and 10 of them come back and say, it is a good land, but there's no way that we can take possession of this land. The people are too strong and their cities are too large and fortified. Their report then leads the people to reject going into this land and instead to make plans to go back to Egypt. This rebellion causes the death of an entire generation in the wilderness. And now a new generation stands before these same strong people and these same big fortified cities. Will they trust God to keep his promises or not? And the might of Jericho was not something to be taken lightly. So this was a fortified city that covered approximately 13 acres. It was very big. Would have taken about an hour to walk around. Uh, In Deuteronomy 128, we read that from the perspective of the people, these cities were fortified to the heavens. They were huge. And can you imagine if you're standing there, seeing these cities, and you know that that's the kind of thing standing in your way? That's intimidating. It's no wonder that just believing in God's promises was a part of the test. Believing in God's word. The text says in in verse 1 that Jericho is shut up inside and outside, seemingly fortified to the heavens. Then God says to Joshua, look, you see that city? Uh, I've given Jericho into your hands and its king and its mighty men of valor now, here's what you're going to do. So a new promise and a new test for a new generation. But this kind of raises some interesting questions. And this is a, the second thing I want us to consider. Whose, whose conflict is this? Is this a war of nations? Uh, is this a war of ethnicities or religions? Whose conflict is this? Well, look over at chapter 5, in verse 1. It says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And then look at the last few verses of chapter 5. Verse 13, Joshua comes near Jericho and looks up to see a man standing with a drawn sword in his hand. And the interaction there is really important. It sets the stage for the next five chapters of Joshua. He sees this figure and he asks, are you for us or for our enemies? And what does he say? He says, neither, neither. He replied, I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. So the question is not whose side is God on, but rather is Joshua on God's side? The commander of God's army is here. The army of the Lord is here. This is God's conflict. And Israel is at many times little more than a spectator or a participant in what God is doing. And we see this reality even here in chapter 6. In verse 2, the Lord says what? I have given Jericho, into your hand. Therefore, you'll march. There's no if to this. You will do this. Here's your orders to follow. God continues to be the one that's in charge of these conflicts. Uh, Throughout all these battles in the next five chapters, God is the one doing the fighting. You can even flip over to chapter 10. If you flip over to chapter 10, you see some of this language in verse 8. The Lord says to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for I have handed them over to you. Verse 10, The Lord threw them into confusion. Verse 11, As they fled, the Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky. And verse 14, The Lord fought for Israel. Even the strange tools of their warfare in chapter 6 reveal that this is not simply just a battle. Grab your swords and go fight the enemy. Notice with me the seven trumpets of ram's horns that the priests are told to carry in chapter 6. This is an interesting double word in Hebrew. Because trumpet in Hebrew is the word shofar. And with it is this other word, yobel. Translated here, ram's horns. But it can mean proclamation. So we have shofar it, yobelim. So it's a very particular trumpet. And we have heard of these trumpets before in the story of Israel. But we haven't seen them in action yet. You can turn left in your Bible. I'd like you to do this. In Leviticus chapter 25. Turn left to Leviticus chapter 25. In Leviticus 25 and verse 8, we read this. Leviticus 25 verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, 7 times 7 years, so that the time of the 7 weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet shofar on the 10th day of the 7th month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate a 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee. And there's our word, Yobel. It shall be a Yobel for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows or of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. A little side note here, I'm from Peelahatchee, Mississippi, and our town festival every year is called the Muscadine Jubilee. Uh, every September, you can look forward to arts and crafts, country music, and muscadines. Uh, it's a great time, Pelahatchie, Mississippi. Look it up. Uh, I wonder how many people, though, realize the jubilee comes from this Hebrew word for horns. The jubilee in Israel was a festival year of liberation, and rest debts were canceled family lands were returned and the land and everyone in it rested and the text of Joshua gives us all of these little hyperlinks that connect these dots from Leviticus 25 to what's happening here in Joshua chapter 6 so Leviticus 25 this happens on the day of atonement Well, what did we just have happen in Joshua chapter 5? They observed Passover. Not the same festival, but similar themes. The year of Jubilee in Leviticus 25, they were told to eat the produce of the land, not farm. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 11 and 12, it talks about how they ate from the produce of the land, and then the manna ceased because they had come into a land that was ready for them. The Jubilee in, chapter 20, in Leviticus 25, we're told, is holy. Then Joshua, at the end of chapter 5, is told to take off his sandals, because the place that he is standing is holy. In Leviticus, all of these things mean that Jubilee is here. Now in Joshua, God wants Israel to march around Jericho for seven days, Blasting these trumpets of Jubilee in order to proclaim liberty throughout the land of Canaan. Big stuff is happening. There are three things that characterize this march around Jericho the trumpets, uh, the shouting, and the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. Trumpets, shouting, presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant. Every other time we see these three things present in Scripture. Whether it's Psalms or Revelation, the context is either worship or judgment. Trumpets shouting, presence of God. It's either worship or judgment. What do we have here? Clearly, we see the conflict is the Lord's. He is asking Joshua and his people to be courageous and show faithful obedience in these things. Now, what they're doing is a matter of being faithful and believing in God, being obedient. But faithful obedience, faithful obedience can sometimes look foolish. Look at John, or Jesus says, Now is the judgment of this world, in John chapter 12, Now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And that's amazing, he's going to win this victory over the enemy of this world. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Through the death on the cross, Jesus' death on the cross, it didn't look like victory over a ruler, nor something that people would want to gather to. And even though this looks foolish, this is the form that victory and salvation are going to take. I was reminded of VeggieTales episode uh, titled Josh and the Big Wall. Uh, the residents of Jericho, who are French peas for some reason, uh, they asked the Jewish vegetables, yes, this is, a, this is a show, guys, this is a show. It's confusing, but they ask the Jewish vegetables what they're doing, and Josh says, uh, we're going to knock down your wall. And the French peas say, by walking around it? <laughs> And there's this long pause. And Josh goes, it's not because we're crazy or anything. Our God told us to do it this way. There are little hints all throughout this story that show that they believe God and they're obeying God. Just look at this language where God tells Joshua, then Joshua goes and tells the priest, and then he tells the people. There's this clear uh, structure of explaining and command. The word avar comes up a lot where it's when you see straight ahead or went forward or straight before him. These are people that are just right in step with what's being told. They're moving forward according to what God has told them. Joshua and his people are said to get up early in the morning in verses 12 and 15. When you see this in the Old Testament, this is always people eager to obey in a, in a difficult thing, the that, that situations that leave, would leave us with sleepless nights. These people, in belief, they get up early, eager to get to work and see what God is going to do. Other times when you see people getting up early in Joshua, it shows this eagerness to do what God has said. The repeated language of the story here, uh, it, it has... You, we have the first and the second day, word for word, and then it skips to the seventh day. But any time you see stuff repeated in the Bible, it's trying to make a point. Well, Think about this. They didn't have copy and paste back when they were writing this. It took a long time and a lot of material to write things like this. And you didn't waste space repeating yourself unless you had a point to make. So the repeated language shows us as well. This is important. Their faithful obedience, it's faithful obedience, this is commendable, exemplary even. We also should faithfully obey in similar ways. The author of Hebrews says this: We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience, inherit the promises. Faithful obedience, persistence. Can you imagine being inside the city of Jericho, though? This tension builds day after day. There's this growing sense of inevitability. And the question is, will the people cry out for mercy, or will they resist God of Israel. Warren Wearsby said, Every wonder that God performed and every victory that God gave His people was a witness to the people of the land. But they preferred to go on in their sins and reject the mercy of God. Read with me in Joshua chapter 6, verse 16. It says that, At the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people... Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. So the people shouted, and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. But how did the walls fall down? I mean, every good five-year-old is going to ask this question. right. I mean, was it loss of structural integrity? Was it an earthquake? The loud shouting? I feel like some of my kids' shouting can bring down walls sometime, right? The Bible actually tells us how the walls fell down. But it's not here, though. It's in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 30 says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. What did that faith look like? That's what we've been saying here. It was obedient. It was straightforward. It was patient. That's kind of the flavor of our faith that we practice. But thus ends the Sunday school portion of our sermon this morning. Because I'm not shying away from Joshua's commands in verses 17 through 19, nor the people's actions in verse 21. So take a deep breath and let's talk about divine violence and these conquest narratives because this is where we're going to be for the next few weeks. So I want us to have the right frame of thinking as we approach these texts. What do we do with these stories where obedience looks like vengeful violence? Is this justice or is this cruelty? This is an extremely complicated issue for many reasons. It raises historical questions, challenges in our interpretation. It also generates theological questions about the character of God. And I don't think that our time this morning on this topic can satisfy everyone's questions. And I've honestly spent a lot of time wrestling with these conquest stories over the years. And there's a lot that I'm still unpacking. But I want to build some of this framework in your mind so that you can explore Scripture fully and engage with objections to these stories as they come up. So let me introduce you to another Hebrew word here. Harem. That's H-E-R-E-M. It's transliteration. When you see totally destroy, place under a ban devoted to destruction. This is where this word is coming up. So we have the people of Canaan devoted to destruction. Now, the reasons for this, I'm going to frame up four thoughts around the conquest of Canaan. The first one is that the reasons for this conquest are very complex. Um, there's a largely untold story between God and the Canaanites that we only get hints of in the Old Testament. And we see that God has been patient with their idolatry. All the way back at the beginning of Israel's story, when God brings Abraham to this land, he makes a promise to Abraham. Uh, this is in uh, Genesis uh, chapter 12, then, or 15. The Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's what happens in Egypt. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. That's the Exodus. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Then he says this, For the iniquity... The guilt, the sin guilt of the Amorites, or the Canaanites, is a type of the, some of the Canaanites that were there, it's not yet complete. The sin guilt, it hasn't reached its full measure. God is not finished showing patience to these people. And this patience is similar to how God is patient with Pharaoh for generations, giving Egypt ten final chances to turn back and obey. God's been patient with them, but he's been patient with their, with their religion, their idolatry. He's also been patient with their moral corruption. Leviticus 18 and 20 describe the Canaanites destructive religious practices, sexual exploitation, injustice, harmful ritual body mutilation, along with widespread and abhorrent practice of child sacrifice. Canaanite culture was described as utterly corrupt, especially when it came to violence and abuse of the most vulnerable in their communities. The Old Testament presents the Israelites as an instrument of God's justice, not pillagers. This was an act of divine punishment on an extremely corrupt society. Number two, the scope of the destruction. The scope of the destruction and the conquest is actually much smaller than we think. The ancient Israelite conquest of Canaan, it describes a limited event that was unrepeated in their history. The relevant stories that we see are Numbers 21, Numbers 31, and then what we're about to read in Joshua 6-12, through as well as 1 Samuel 15. When anyone talks about the whole Old Testament as being filled with violence and that all these wars are commanded by God. They're drawing false caricatures of the Old Testament. Uh, the conquest of Canaan, it took place in a single generation. And it was limited in its time, in its location, and its scope. The peoples and the cities that are placed under this ban, they are mentioned repeatedly and precisely. That These are the people... These are the people that you are to go up against. When the people of Israel go outside of that scope, they themselves fall under judgment. There's this wild story at the end of Judges about the tribe of Dan, who when they were told to go in and take possession of their inheritance, they were actually run into the hills by the people that lived there. So later on in Judges, uh, in chapter 18... They go and scout out this town, this city, this area called Laish, which was said to be quiet, unsuspecting, and defenseless. And they say, oh, we'll take that. And they go in and they kill all of these people and take possession of their land. And God says, no, that's not what I told you to do. And they face the same consequences for their corruption and lack of belief. This is not an Israel versus Canaan conflict based on ethnic identity. And the term genocide is not accurate or helpful to describe these battles for a variety of reasons. Mainly, they were told to live at peace with these nations once they came into this land in Deuteronomy 20. There were many Canaanites who recognized the God of Israel as Lord of all nations and they joined the covenant people. Think of Rahab, Ruth, the Gibeonites this would not have been allowed if it was about ethnicity the people of Canaan they were not a unified identity their opposition to Israel is what brought them together the conflicts recounted in Joshua 9 through 11 they all begin with various Canaanite kings forming coalitions and making a plan to go and attack the Israelites first before they even get here what do we do then with the language of these battles? It's often so sweeping and intense. It says they left no survivor. The Israelites utterly destroyed them, Destroy everything that breathes. Well, there is good biblical scholarship, along with a comparison of other ancient Near Eastern uh, battle narratives that shows the biblical authors are using these phrases as intentional hyperbole. You know, they're, they're making a statement of, of battle strength. And, and we also have examples of this. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, they're told to utterly destroy the people. But then shortly after that, they're said, they, it says, well, don't intermarry or make treaties with them. Well, I don't know how you're going to marry someone that you've utterly destroyed. So there seems to be some allowance for that. Also, there's these regions of Hebron and Debir. In Joshua chapter 10, it says that when these cities were conquered, none survived. And then it says that Joshua did everything that God commanded him. So, whatever just happened, that was good. You did it the right way. But then in Joshua 15, it says it talks about the Canaanites who were living in Hebron and Debir. So there's this language for these places were utterly destroyed, and yet there are still Canaanites who are living there. And all the while, Joshua is commended for what just happened in that story. The cities that they engaged with, like Jericho and Ai, were small, militarily strategic outpost towns surrounded by walls. And their inhabitants were mostly combatants. We read in Joshua how everyone in Joshua, fought, everyone in Jericho, fought against the people of Israel. Also, this drive-out language that we read in Judges, as you read Judges chapter one and two, it seems to be more accurate of what God is describing here. And this makes sense if we continue with this idea that God is liberating a land, freeing a land, and establishing a new Eden-like place. Where he can live in relationship with people. Remember what happened to the man and the woman after they sinned in Genesis chapter 3. says they were driven out of the garden by an angelic being wielding a flaming sword. Driven out. Okay. So while these things may be true, hyperbole, scope, language of driving out, this just doesn't... This doesn't simply satisfy all the questions that we have. And it doesn't satisfy our simple reading of the text in every instance. Even our text here today in verse 21, where it says, Then they, harem, they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. I just... There's too many hoops for me to jump through to, to say anything other than these people were killed. So what, what do we do with that? How, how do we talk through these things? So let me summarize where we are so far. God is responding justly to human evil in the conquest of Canaan. And God does not command the destruction of everyone everywhere. The scope is much smaller. But then also, God's justice is impartial. God's justice is impartial. God is consistent. He doesn't play favorites. Notice what Joshua says in six eighteen. He says, "Keep yourselves from the things set apart, or you will be set apart for destruction." In Hebrew, it says, "Stay away from the harem, or you will be haram." Like if you do if you do this, then you're going to be destroyed. If you take any of those things, you will set apart the camp of Israel for destruction and make trouble for it. And of course. That's exactly what happens in chapter 7 with Achan and his family. God also warns the Israelites much earlier that if they broke the covenant and adopted the culture and religion of the Canaanites, that they would face the same consequences as the Canaanites. And of course, that's exactly what happens later in the story. As their religious and moral corruption grows, the Israelites' land is invaded. Their cities are besieged, countless people are killed, and they are driven out of the land in exile to Assyria and Babylon. I don't think we have time to look at it this morning, but in Amos chapter 3, you see this laid out, the prophet Amos saying, this is what's going to happen. And the language is very similar to what we read in Joshua chapter 6 with a shout coming. It says how the the Lord, uh, the Lord says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Same thing he said to Abraham about Canaan. It talks about a trumpet is blown in a city. Are the people not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And then it talks about Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod and the strongholds in Egypt. He's saying, go tell the pagan people to come look and see what I'm about to do to my people, Israel. And then he talks about how an adversary surrounds the land and brings down your defenses from you and your strongholds. The same language of what Jericho is, this strong, fortified city. Thus says the Lord, uh, yeah, you're going to be destroyed. Only a remnant is going to survive. In reality, the majority of the Old Testament shows how Israel adopted destructive religions and corrupt cultural practices and was completely destroyed and removed from the land in the same way. Tim Mackey says this, far more generations of Israelites experienced God's justice at the hands of their enemies than the single generation of Canaanites. It is simply a distortion of teaching to say that God is always for Israel and against all other nations. So, God is responding justly to human evil. God does not command the destruction of everyone. God's justice is impartial. And lastly, God's mercy is ever present. God's mercy is ever present. Because the Canaanites can and do turn to God. In faith, the literary center of passage this morning, Joshua chapter 6, is Joshua's command to devote the city to destruction. The things in the city are to be considered devoted to the worship of God or destroyed. And intermixed in these commands are instructions to go and rescue Rahab and her family. We met Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. She hides the Israelite spies in her home. She was a prostitute, a low member of society, and a Canaanite, born outside the covenant promises of God. And yet, listen to what she says to the spies. Joshua 2 verse 8. Before the men fell asleep, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land. And that the terror of you has fallen on us and everyone who lives in the land is panicking because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings, you completely destroyed across the Jordan. When we heard this, we lost heart and everyone's courage failed because of you. Then she says this, For Yahweh, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now please swear to me by Yahweh that you will also show kindness to my father's family because I showed kindness to you. Give me a sure sign, a sign of truth in the Hebrew, that you will spare the lives of my father, mother, brothers, sisters, and all who belong to them and save us from death. And then the men answered, we will give our lives for yours. If you don't report our mission, we will show kindness and faithfulness. Here's your last Hebrew word. Chesed. Steadfast love. This is the covenant love of God and His people. He says, we we will show you kindness and faithful love when the Lord gives us this land. So they make this quick covenant with Rahab. We'll give our lives for yours. We'll show kindness. We'll show faithfulness. Rahab lived in a house built into the wall of Jericho. And she takes a scarlet rope and she ties it into the window after she lets them down out of that window. Presumably that scarlet rope hung there every day as the Israelites even began marching on Jericho. And she gathers all of her family into her home, waiting and waiting that promised rescue. I was just thinking, they they didn't get me out of here first? Like, I thought they were going to come and get me? And on the seventh day, with shouts and trumpets, everything around them falls apart. And as the dust settles and the men of Israel advance on that city, they see something amazing. The walls of Jericho have fallen. But in the midst of this destruction, stands one small section of the wall that God had preserved and shielded. And on it hangs a blood-red rope marking the home of a family that cried out to God for mercy. Rahab and her family, they are not destroyed. Instead, they become a trophy of God's grace in this story. God chooses to show mercy to one whose unworthiness underscores the riches of His grace. That's low society, prostitute, Canaanite. And he says, that's who I'm going to show grace to. Do we see similar patterns in the Bible? Yes, all over the place. Hagar, an Egyptian servant taken advantage of by Abraham and Sarah, And yet God sees her. Ruth, a Moabite, she's another one of these Canaanites. It's meant to be driven out. And yet she becomes part of the covenant family of God. Even Jesus' interactions with people, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the woman caught in adultery, we see over and over again that God is choosing to show mercy to those whose unworthiness underscores the riches of His grace. Faith, rescued Rahab from the destruction and the burning of Jericho Hebrews 11:31 by faith Rahab the prostitute welcomed the spies in peace and didn't perish with those who disobeyed Faith brings Rahab into God's story of blessing the whole world They're rescued they're brought out it says that they live outside the camp but we know we know that they were brought into the covenant people of God. Because in Matthew, in Jesus' genealogy, we find Rahab brought in not only the people of God, not only the family of God, but to this very story of redemption and the rescue and restoration of the whole world. Lastly, there's this warning here for us. Because the conquest of Canaan... It prefigures the future judgment of the world. I mean, look around you guys. I, I don't know. Sometimes it's just the, the world just it, so much seems to be approaching biblical proportions. and it should cause us to at least consider these warnings that we see in Scripture, because when talking about when Jesus would return, Paul in First Thessalonians chapter four. He says, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. Man, shouts and trumpets. Unless they're worship, it's not a good thing for people. In response to this, the Canaanites, they panicked and they lost heart. But my encouragement to you is don't panic. Confess the glory of God, like Rahab, and cry out for mercy. Jim Hamilton said this, that the overwhelming glory of Yahweh forces those who feel the coming condemnation to risk all they have to seek mercy. Rahab and her family, they came out of Jericho with nothing, but they gained everything. Don't panic. Confess the glory of God and cry out for mercy. And don't lose heart. Look for those in need of saving. Who among our family would we want to be rescued from this destruction? Rahab, she's going and she's gathering everyone. Who among your friends might God see as a trophy of His grace if we would only seek to save those Around us, the Bible concludes this way. My, my my sermon title is this: that we consider God's kindness and severity. And this comes directly from Romans chapter eleven. And the context of this, I love if you. You can turn there if you want. Romans chapter eleven. The context of this is Paul is telling the Gentiles um, not to take pride in being brought into the family of God, while the Jews seem to reject Jesus as Messiah. And he says this, uh, Romans 11, verse 18, Do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. So he's talking about, this is their belief, unbelief of Jews, Gentiles, and this is, this is us. This is the world. Belief, unbelief. Some are going to be brought in, attached to this tree, grafted in, sustained by Jesus, and others are going to be destroyed. He says, do not be arrogant, but be aware, beware. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you, if you remain in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in, because God has the power to graft them in again. So there's a great warning to you who believe and have received mercy. It's consider the kindness and the severity of God. But there is also a great welcome to you who have yet to believe. Cry out to God for mercy. That you consider God's kindness, but also His severity. Pray with me. Um, God, in so many ways, um, our minds are uh, feeble in understanding the full measure of Scripture. And yet, you give us so much help, um, as the Scripture is written, to understand, to believe, also to try to practice this in our hearts and, and in our lives. And so I just pray that we humble ourselves before your word, and that we seek to learn Um, that we are patient um, with ourselves and and with you as we learn and grow, that we not neglect simple stories like the walls of Jericho that we feel like we know, but that we look carefully to uh, see uh, what it is you are saying through all the time in these passages. And Father, I pray that you communicate to our hearts um, what is true, uh, and that you help us to see uh, clearly Uh, at the end, your salvation, uh, your kindness, your love, uh, but also that you are just. So, Father, uh, be with us as we uh, think on these things and as we read our scripture in light of these things. In Jesus' name,
0: amen.